The overview for tonight is this, that, uh, of course, we will have that devotional, followed by a roundtable discussion. And again, we have medical personnel up here, and um, perhaps, Paul, who is taking the lead, Dr. Tell, tonight in the discussions, you could have them briefly introduce themselves and uh, their particular role in health care so that we're all up to speed on who we're listening to as they speak. We're working on our sound. I want to make sure that you can hear clearly because I believe these are very important, critical questions that we need to be able to address. So there will be a roundtable discussion. It's going to be based upon some case studies initially that the medical personnel have encountered, faced over the course of time and their experience. And then we're going to somewhere in that 640-ish plus time period then open it up to question and answer time. And Pastors McDonald and Anderson are going to have microphones, and they'll make their way around. So if you could just wave, and they'll make certain that um, we're able to get that question answered. So with that in mind, let me start with a word of prayer. Our Father, tonight, as we come before you, we're coming before you as people who don't want to avoid the big issues. We realize that our culture requires somebody to take the lead, to be able to pave the way where the government is becoming increasingly involved in health matters from cradle to grave, combined with added technology, In the growth of secularization, we have a a very complex scenario unfolding, and we live in such a day as this. So my prayer tonight is that, again, we are equipping a body of people to be able to articulate a Christian worldview on these matters to those who have not thought them through, to personalize what's being said so that we ourselves are better equipped to be able to handle our future. And at all times, in all settings, Father, to honor you through this. So we're committing these moments to you tonight, and I pray that each one of us, the panelists, as well as those that are asking questions, will be guided by the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name now. Amen. People, what I want us to be able to start with in terms of an understanding of tonight, where last week we talked about the whole fact of death, And tonight, the whole matter of the dying process is this. The dying process is part of the living process. Let me say that again. The dying process is part of the living process. Because some of the most important teachings that we were given by Jesus Christ were delivered in the midst of the dying process. But that dying process was still part of that part of that living process. I find it fascinating when you look at Jesus Christ in the midst of the dying process. He was, because of divine mandate, in an irreversible condition. This was not going to be reversed. But I find it fascinating, furthermore, maybe you have thought the same, that God has chosen in that particular time, for Jesus Christ to go through the dying process in a conscious rather than an unconscious state. That helps you and me, then, to better understand what it is that he wants us to be able to apply with regard to his teachings in the dying process. And so, with that framing our thoughts, consider with me very briefly, very briefly, the seven statements that Jesus Christ delivered on the cross and how that relates to us being better equipped for the dying process and helps us furthermore to be able to honor God in the way in which we prepare for that. His first statement on that cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I find as a senior pastor that very often when people are at that point where they're in the dying process, there is is a sense of unforgiveness in some of the relationships. People are pained because they have not reconciled with the one dying, 
or the one dying has not reconciled with the ones who will remain living. What stands out in that first of the seven statements in the dying process is that Jesus went on record regarding the relational aspects of the dying process and emphasized the whole realm of forgiveness. People, let's not wait for that time. Let's go out of our way to make certain that we are paving the way as a model for what true forgiveness is all about rather than waiting for that point where we think perhaps we can now do it, but we slip from the conscious to the unconscious state and no longer was that made available to us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, was the first statement. The second statement, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise, taken from Luke 23, verse 43. If the first statement was one of forgiveness, the second statement is one of future certainty. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He's offering assurance to another person, as that person likewise is in the dying process. You have tremendous opportunity in the dying process to still minister to others with your life, your testimony, your willingness to forgive, and be forgiven, and also your ability to be able to speak with certainty if you are born again, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I tell you the truth. I'm going to be with my Father in heaven. A third statement. It's what I would call a provisional statement. Jesus said, Dear woman, here is your son. And then to the Apostle John, here is your mother. In other words, in the dying process, thirdly, Jesus Christ gave us a model of how to provide for others. He was not so much thinking about his pain as he was thinking about the provisions necessary for the ones he would be leaving behind, his mother in particular. As you consider your advanced directives, I want you to be thinking about that as well. How do you go about preparing to provide for those who will be left behind? Have you identified that individual or those individuals who could be crucial for that person's care? Fourthly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Fourthly, I find that in the dying process, questions are being posed, critical questions. But what fascinates me about this particular series of questions being posed is that it's taken directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. In other words, Jesus is quoting Scripture as he's posing questions. It's critically important in the dying process that we challenge and equip people when they are posing questions to do so in the context of Scripture because there is only one who truly understands the matter of death and then came back to tell us about it, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Model our questions after him, but at the same time, draw from the same resources that he did, astoundingly in the source of his pain. He was meditating on God's word. Do it now so you're prepared to do it then. Fifthly, he said, I am thirsty, in which then wine vinegar was provided in John 19, verse 28. This falls under the category of comfort or palliative care, which we're going to get into next week in greater form, where once we have an irreversible condition, and this person is still conscious at this point, Jesus was, what kind of care can then be provided to be able to reduce the pain that he's enduring and facing? You have here a tremendous medical model unfolding for you in these seven statements. The sixth statement It is finished, taken from John chapter 19 and verse 30. It's the statement of completion. You and I typically will be ending our days saying, if only I could have, and then you fill in the blank. Jesus never had to face that issue. He said, tetelestai, it is finished. Bear in mind, then, that the person in the dying process is wrestling with an issue of completion. Give them some assurance with regard to what it is they still have on their mind, that there may be someone in their circle that can help carry it on to completion if they themselves 
feel as though something is undone and will remain undone. Understand what their completion principles are. Finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Taken from Luke chapter 23, verse 46. He ends then with a statement of personal trust. He is able to trust in the one. He is able to entrust himself in the one. What a powerful connection of trust and entrust we find in that statement. Father, into your hands, I'm not taking matters into my hands. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, which means then that each one of us needs to make absolutely certain we have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He began with the name Father. He ends with the word Father. We see the relational aspect in the dying process. In these seven statements, bear in mind, the dying process is a highly relational matter, in particular with regards to those you leave behind, but also with the one to whom you will go, God the Father. The dying process is still part of the living process. And because of that, you have a tremendous opportunity to make a difference on the heart and in the memory of those you leave behind. Seven thoughts from God's Word. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Tuttle, let you introduce the panel and take it away from you. Thanks, Gary. Can everyone hear me on this mic? We wanted to make sure that we had good audio this week, so... Everyone could really hear well. So we'll try to be speaking into the mic. If, you, if we trail off, uh, then you let us know. Speak up. We certainly want to be heard. My name is Paul Tuttle. I'm a, a neurologist uh, here in Sheboygan, and I work at the Aurora Sheboygan Clinic. And uh, then I'll go down the line. Let Dean, why don't you introduce yourself? Good evening. My name is Dean Becker. I'm the clinic manager for Marshall Family Medical Group uh, here in Sheboygan. Jeff Lyons, a family practice doctor here in Sheboygan. Kari um, Verzel, ditto. <laughs> My name is Sam Parks. I'm an anesthesiologist at St. Nicholas Hospital. All right. Well, I, I'm going to um, I'm going to make uh, Marge Void happy because uh, she was wondering how many people here had advanced directives. And uh, if you look at surveys, I think, of uh, the older population, um, and I guess maybe I'm there now, over 50, maybe 40% of Americans have uh, an advanced directive. And Marge was thinking it was probably a lot less than that. So let me just have a show of hands. How many people here have an advanced directive? If so, raise your hand, including the panelists, too. Um, okay, so... That's uh, a fair number. I'd say probably close to half. And how many of you picked up uh, one of the advanced directives from, from last week, one of these documents? So, so a fair number. And, you know, one of the points we were, we were discussing before we came here this evening in the library, that these should not be considered to be static documents, that these can change as your health condition changes. Uh, if you have an advanced uh, directive from like I do from 18 years ago, it might not be a bad idea to pull it out of your safe and brush it off, take a look at it, and see if maybe, maybe your desires about how you would like to be treated at the end of your life when you're not able to make those decisions for yourself have changed, possibly. So anyway, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about um, uh, the dying process, uh, end-of-life decisions. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to have a a good death and a bad death. We're going to talk a little bit about dying in America today. So, uh, Randy, if you could uh, go ahead to the next slide. Most Americans today have no first-hand experience with death. Uh, the experience of death in America today is often framed in the context of hospitals and in nursing homes. Uh, it's not unusual for uh, people today to die without having their loved ones at their bedsides. Uh, Nobel Prize recipient George Wald said this, Just realize, 
I am 69, and I have never seen a person die. Imagine it. The most dramatic event of human life has been taken out of my experience. And that's because most Americans today do not die at home. As uh, Pastor Greg Waybright said, it used to be that people experienced birth and death in the same house. Now death is confined to the terminal wards. It has been termed the universal human repression of our day. It's almost like that, that dying experience has been taken away from us. Uh, for whatever it's worth, there probably has been a change in that experience in, in our country over the last decade or so. A recent study showed that about a third of Medicare beneficiaries um, died at home, and that was up about 10% from the decade before. Uh, 25% died in the hospital, and that was actually down 10% um, over the same, I'm sorry, down a quarter over the same decade. The number dying in nursing homes over that time period from 2000 to 2009 really had not changed much. One uh, number that was interesting, the number dying in hospice care, and that could be either at home or a hospital or a nursing home or in a hospice institution, it actually doubled. It was about 42% of patients uh, were dying in hospice care. Now, like most Americans, um, as a young person, I had really no experience with death. I did not even uh, encounter a dead body until I started medical school and that was the first week of med school when I, along with all of my classmates, went to the anatomy lab and we met our cadaver that we dissected over the next year. As a third-year medical student, I did a rotation in internal medicine at a large hospital. This was 1978. Um, at that time, there were not many advanced directives. People did not have them. But the default position was that if you died in the hospital, you got resuscitated if you did not specifically forbid it. And we didn't really ask people very well about whether they wanted it or not. So during that time when I was doing internal medicine, I participated in a lot of uh, resuscitations, or we called them codes. Um, Not many people survived. And it was later that I learned that that was expected, that not many people do survive. Uh, that experience was uh, fairly um, impersonal, though. It became more personal when I was an intern and taking care of patients, and I did their histories and physicals, got to know them, and sometimes they died when they were in the hospital. Um, so that was definitely a more personal experience of dying. The, I think that the most personal experience uh, of dying, of course, is when you have a loved one die, and that's when, um, when death became much more personal to me when my father died. Uh, He was in his late 70s, and during the last 10 years of his life, he was suffering from emphysema that was fairly severe. Um, He had cheated death uh, already when he was serving in World War II and was an infantry battalion commander fighting through uh, France and Belgium into Germany. Uh, And as it turned out, he would cheat death several times later in life uh, because of his emphysema. There was one time that he had a large bleb of emphysema, uh, air-filled sack in his lung was causing problems, and um, he wasn't doing well at all. And his internist, Dr. Johnson, thought that maybe he wouldn't survive that. Uh, I consulted a thoracic surgeon who said, you know, I think I can go in. I think I can fix that. Um, And uh, maybe much to our surprise, uh, he did. And uh, he did very well for a number of years after that. Uh, he's enjoyed uh, working in the garden with my mother. Uh, he had limitations, certainly, wore some oxygen around, uh, but overall uh, had a good life. Um, but I had to sit down with him at some point and say, and ask him this question, Dad, what, what would you want to have done if, if your heart were to stop, if you're in the hospital and your heart stops? And he thought about it a little bit, and he said, he said you know, give me a couple shocks. And if that doesn't work, then just stop. Um, he never had an advanced directive. He, he never wrote anything down. Uh, but I think he communicated to me that, you know, he wanted something done if, if it was uh, beneficial for him. But, you know, if it got to the point that it looked like nothing was going to help, then, then just, just stop. Um, so it was a few years later that I call, got a call from my sister saying that dad was very sick. He was in the hospital. He had a fever, was 
was on the ventilator and um, his kidneys weren't working very well. She said, come down right away. So I flew down to Raleigh, North Carolina and walked into the ICU. He was on the ventilator. He was not responsive either. And I didn't know why that was, uh, but I knew that wasn't good either. His internist, Dr. Johnson, came by on rounds that afternoon and said, um, said, Paul, your father is dying. And I knew he was right. Um, you know, I wanted to bargain with him, but I, I didn't really have anything to bargain about. And so I talked to my mother and my sisters, and we thought, um, you know, we just the best thing to do would be to have him go to room, take the tube out of his uh, trachea. Um, I wanted to give him some IV fluids just because. And um, so we spent uh, the next 12 hours at his bedside uh, talking and reading scripture and praying. And um, so we were all there when he took his last breath. So people die in many ways. They die of chronic illnesses. Um, sometimes people die very suddenly, too. Uh, a couple of years ago, I heard a Christian ethicist talk about um, about how he wanted to die a good death, and then that kind of got my attention. I thought, well, you know, what, so what would that be like to to die a good death? And um, if you think about it, um, you know, we, we want to die when we don't want to be suffering when we die. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to be gasping for breath. Uh, we like to have our loved ones or our family and friends around us. We want to be able to be conscious. As Gary was saying, the Lord was, was conscious on the cross. He was able to talk to his loved ones there. He was able to extend forgiveness. Um, and that's what, that's what I liked. I liked to be able to, to extend forgiveness and say, forgive me, and say, thank you for, for what you've done, what you've meant to me in my life. Um, so I think there are, there are ways to die a good death, and I think it's, it's okay to pray to God and ask for that. But I would also maintain that there are uh, bad ways to die, too. Uh, there is such a thing as having a bad death. If I were late in life and very ill um, with a lot of problems, I, I wouldn't want to have uh, CPR done on me and have my ribs broken. Um, I wouldn't want to be put on a ventilator for days at a time just to die in the ICU with little chance of recovery. And I wouldn't want to put my family through that situation, especially if I had not talked with them in advance, if I had not gone through one of these directives and written down some of the things that I didn't want to have. Um, and I want to you know, make them know, too, that ultimately to be out of my body um, is to be with the Lord um, so that they should not grieve too much. So tonight I'd like to get into some of the nitty-gritty about advanced directives. We'll go through some case scenarios, talk about uh, CPR for one thing, um, what that's all about. In fact, let's go to the next slide. Um, you know, going back centuries, uh, physicians would try to bring people back from death, and they would take bellows and put them into people's mouths and try to force air into their lungs. And this is a slide from journal circulation in 1960 showing what we do with uh, chest compressions when we're trying to resuscitate someone, you're depressing the sternum and trying to force blood out of the heart. It's a very ineffective way of getting your blood circulated, but sometimes it's enough to keep people going. Um, let's look at the next slide. Um, here's a um, some scenarios. I just want to go through some scenarios and talk about uh, resuscitation. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, and I'm going to throw this out to the panel too. The, um, you know, I have seen people come back and be resuscitated, and that's a good thing. And if, if at my age, uh, if I were in the hospital and something happened, I'd say, yeah, go ahead and, and resuscitate me when I check in. So here's a 60-year-old who's being admitted to the hospital for elective hip surgery. And, and uh, say you're under the doctor's care. Say this is you. You're under the doctor's care. You've had a stent uh, place because you had some heart trouble. But everything's fine. Your doctor said, no, his heart's good. Her heart's good. Let's go ahead and get that hip fixed. And then the admitting physician asks this, um, okay, um, uh, Kathy, um, if your heart were to stop, would you want to be resuscitated? Um, and let's look at scenario two, okay? A little bit different. You're 75 years old now. You've had that stent put in, but something's happened in the meantime. Now you have end-stage kidney disease. You're on dialysis. And now you're not coming in for an elective procedure. You're coming in because you have pneumonia, and you're pretty sick. 
And now the admitting physician asks, if your heart were to stop while you're in the hospital, would you want to be resuscitated? So, two different scenarios, uh, two different things, situations to consider. And, and I think these are real-life scenarios. So I'm going to throw that open to the panel for their comments. I think a place to start on this discussion that I run into a little bit is the question is, is what does it mean to be resuscitated? Because you think, you know, resuscitated, that means like the movies, right? That somebody collapsed at a party and everybody rushes over and a couple minutes of chaos and then they sit up and they start talking again. And um, that uh, never happens. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> what resuscitation from what we call a cardiopulmonary resuscitation, hence CPR, basically we're talking about the heart and the lungs. This is a process that is, there's been some refinements over the years as far as how many times, you know, I was a lifeguard when I was in college, and man, we were, we had our, like, we would do CPR drills as part of, like, guard training, and, you know, you got more prestige as what, what the, how efficient and how correctly you did CPR because we had, like, nothing else to, like, compete on, I guess. I don't know. So, <laughs> so we would do these, like, um, relay races on doing CPR and pulling people out of the water. It was great fun. It was completely hilarious. But um, the process of CPR primarily is a very um, uh, temporary way of basically either uh, restoring breathing or breathing for somebody, restoring circulation or um, uh, restoring their circulation, at least on a temporary basis. <clears throat> Many of us took CPR classes. You remember the ABCs um, where you, know, you uh, breathe mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions. The um, CPR has evolved over the last 20 years since I was a lifeguard. Sorry, <laughs> goodbye youth, right? Uh, since I, in the last 20 years, to primarily the induction of the uh, automatic uh, defibrillator devices, where a lot of, they're stationed a lot of uh, airports and things where people give um, shocks, and that can be done in the community, and shocks can be done as well in the hospital. The primary purpose of shocking is not just drama on TV, but also to, um, there are certain electrical trying to dumb it, I don't want to say dumb it down because I'm trying to keep it simple, but um, basically the way the, communicate, the heart communicates and coordinates its movement is done by electrical system, and what it does is it resets the electrical system to restore appropriate pumping motion, and uh, it's kind of like a reboot uh, on your computer, and um, just as a macro. So, so it's, a, it's a complex process, and it's not something that... Um, you can just uh, typically, here's a shock, and, and wake up and get back to what you were doing. You're going to end up in a, on a ventilator in, in the intensive care unit for a while. Dr. Parks has uh, a lot of experience with uh, putting tubes into people and, and actually uh, bringing them back, and you probably shocked a few people in your I have. Time. So um, in the field of anesthesia is a little bit unique um, in the medical setting. Most physicians are geared... Uh, toward a certain specialty to diagnose and treat illness. Um, in anesthesia, actually, we're really just facilitators. Uh, we, our primary purpose is to um, relieve human pain and suffering. And as part of that, um, our role is to um, sustain life and to protect people in dangerous situations like in surgery and in the ICU. And I'm happy to be here tonight because a lot of patients um, towards the end of their life find themselves in the OR or in the ICU setting. And that can be a pretty scary place. And I know that these topics also can be a little bit overwhelming um, if you're not um, coming from a medical background. So, you know, the first thing I want to emphasize is it's, an, it's a privilege to be here and to be among Christians. And first of all, um, I'm here as, as your brother in Christ um, and also as a physician to hopefully lend that knowledge and guide you you know, through the process, this is a chance for you guys to be educated um, about, you know, what's involved in end-of-life issues, and specifically as we get into more specifics tonight about resuscitation and what that means. But I was telling Gary before we started this evening, I would much rather have a patient in any situation who's educated somewhat about what they're coming into um, when it comes to end-of-life issues, because we can have 
um, you know, a, a, a more understanding conversation if you have some background um, about what to expect as you're coming into to the hospital. So this is a great opportunity for that. Um, and then certainly in, in regards to outcomes, you know, I think what we're kind of dancing around here is, you know, what's going to happen if I need to be resuscitated? Will I be okay? What can I expect afterwards? Um, and I can open that up to everybody, but I, I think that there really is no golden answer. Um, like physicians always say, well, it depends. Um, it does kind of depend. It depends on you. It depends on the situation. Um, if you're coming for surgery like this scenario and you have a broken hip, um, we see that situation in real life all the time. Um, patients coming in, sometimes very frail, very elderly for broken hips. Um, I've had patients come in for surgery, and I've tried to encourage the family actually to not undergo surgery because I don't think it's in the patient's best interest. But ultimately, we will honor your wishes no matter what that is. So we will be as aggressive uh, or as not aggressive as you want us to be. So this is your chance to think about those issues in advance um, as you're kind of taking those steps. So hopefully uh, you'll learn from that this evening. Paul, I think these two scenarios um, really beg the question of quality of life. And they also beg the question of relationships. Uh, Let me explain a little bit. You have somebody who's 60, and the prognosis for that particular person in that scenario is very good. So if their heart would stop, they probably could be resuscitated very quickly and lead a normal life, discharge from the hospital and go on having very normal relationships and continue on with life. In this second scenario, you have somebody who is older, facing numerous conditions that if you know certain things happened if their heart stopped their quality of life would be dramatically changed more than likely and i think those are the types of questions you want to grapple with around the kitchen table if my my life tomorrow life was different for me my quality was different my relationships with family were different how, what kind of medical decisions would I want to make? And, and if your family understands that, they then, or your agent understands that, they can make quality decisions that would align with your wishes when and if that time comes. Jeff, anything you want to add? No, I think they, they covered it pretty well. I, I would only say maybe that... Um, you have to ask the question, why did the heart stop? And the reason it stopped in a 60-year-old is going to be different than this 75-year-old or 95-year-old, and that also affects the outcome. Um, many times a 60-year-old may have stopped because of medications or something that would happen, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the older person, it may be an irreversible effect. Right. Is this still on? Okay. One thing I'd like to add to think about this is that CPR in resuscitation is... Technically, it's a medical procedure, and any medical procedure has complications and side effects, and sometimes we don't necessarily think about those um, things. And you know, some of the, the side, effects we, side effects or complications, like bad things that happened because we intervened. And those, you know, the list you guys can fill in, the, you know, I'll start the list if you guys want to add a few things to it to consider, is um, we almost always break ribs unless we do CPR in a child. And so there's some physical trauma. And the weaker the bones, the worse it is. There's um, uh, complications of deprivation of oxygen during this process. While we can do some with the circulation, it's, about a, it's a matter of how much time the brain and other tissues went without oxygen. And so we may be looking at damage to the brain, uh, damage to the lung, damage to the kidneys, damage to the heart, and that, for the most part, is irreversible. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the consequences of damage to the brain depends on what areas of the brain uh, uh, in the similar to uh, people who've had strokes. Um, there, even if somebody does uh, temporarily uh, survive CPR to the point we call CPR a success, if the heart resumes beating uh, um, uh, either with some assistance or on its own, and uh, even if that's the case, there may not be success with uh, reinitiation or the patient breathing on their own again. And so we're mm-hmm. talking about uh, intubation and that may or may not ever be restored. Um, long-term complications that we see as a result of CPR can result in things like heart failure and pneumonia 
and uh, the consequences of infections and things. And that's just the start of the list. Do you mm. guys have more to add? Well, I think, yeah, that, that covers a lot of territory. It, it is a procedure, and, you know, when we, when we embark on medical procedures, we, we try to assess the benefit to the patient versus the risk. So if a, a certain procedure is a, a high risk and low benefit, then we, we tend to dissuade that person from going through that, assuming they have the capacity to make that decision. So I, I would probably put CPR into that uh, category of being high risk and low benefit. In fact, uh, let's look, Randy, let's go to the next uh, slide. Um, so CPR really is it's a default approach. Uh, if you have a cardiac arrest in the hospital, then unless you say, I don't want to be resuscitated, then you will be resuscitated. Um, and just to go through some stats on the survival of resuscitation, um, what, what's the survival rate um, of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? If you, you know, you're walking down to see someone walking down the street and they drop dead basically and you start doing CPR on them and call the EMTs, what are the chances are that they're going to be, that they will survive and actually be discharged from the hospital? Well, it's only about 6%. And uh, that's not even accounting for the number of patients that have some type of neurologic impairment as a result. Uh, in hospital arrest, uh, the percentages are higher, uh, but not as high as you probably think they were. It's only about 18% of those that have a arrest in the hospital resuscitated are actually uh, able to, to leave the hospital, again, with probably a significant uh, number of them with certain impairments. And the outcome really depends on several factors. Um, you know, if it's, uh, as Dr. Lyon said, a medication effect or maybe a respiratory arrest, then people can get over that pretty quickly. But if your kidneys aren't working well and you're uh, aged and have other medical problems, then, then you're going to have a much lower outcome or chance of survival. Um, so I, I bring this up because these advanced directives, uh, specifically, well, the five wishes talks about uh, life support and uh, what do you want limited in terms of life support in CPR is one of those things that are listed there. In the Columbia St. Mary's uh, one, it actually has a separate section that specifically asks you to check a box, yes or no. I do or I would not want CPR uh, with some conditions on it. You know, it'll say, yes, I want CPR if my physician thinks that this would be beneficial to me. Or, no, I just don't want to have, you know, CPR be resuscitated. So let's, uh, let's look at a scenario. Uh, this is a, a scenario that is something I, I put together. These scenarios are really based on real situations. I've come across situations like this one several times in my career, and uh, so let's run through this. Um, so imagine you are this person. You are 78 years old, you have a history of hypertension and uh, uh, heart arrhythmia or irregularity, and suddenly you develop right-sided paralysis. You're not able to speak and you have trouble understanding what others are saying. So you're in the hospital and uh, we do a brain scan and that shows a large stroke affecting the left side of your brain. And that's typically where your speech area is, and that's why you're having trouble talking, too. So the doctor and speech therapist uh, also do some tests, and they find that you're not able to swallow safely. And then the neurologist uh, is consulted, and he thinks, well, you're probably, based on what he's finding on the exam and the CT scan, that you're going to have some residual damage from the stroke. You're going to be left with some weakness on your right side, some trouble communicating, and it's really hard to say exactly what the extent of your recovery will be. Um, now, in this situation, you don't have an advanced directive. And so the doctor turns to your wife and says, do you want us to put a feeding tube into your husband? And she says, well, we've talked about these things to some extent. She says that, um, that she recalls you didn't, you know, you said you didn't want to be dependent on others towards the latter part of your life. Uh, you wanted to die with dignity. So there is a scenario. A case of a patient with a severe stroke, can't swallow, and there's no advanced directive. Dr. Lines. 
Am I the patient or the doctor? <laughs> You're the wife. <laughs> I'm the wife. <laughs> well, doctor, I'd like to know what are the chances he's going to come out of the hospital and talk to me. Can you? Well, uh, if if things are going as they're going, we we think, and we put a feeding tube in him, then he'll. He'll need total care. You know, he's, you're not going to be able to take care of him by yourself. He'll have to go to nursing home. Uh, over several months, he might have some recovery in terms of use of his right side, and you know, maybe he'll understand a bit more. He'll probably have a hard time really getting much in the way of words out, but maybe he'll understand something. Um, may or may not be able to get that feeding tube out in a few months. It kind of depends on his recovery. So I'd want to know... Um is it important to, to make the decision about the feeding tube right now, or can we wait a few days? Yeah, I would say um, we could wait two or three days. Sometimes we'll see people spontaneously recover their swallowing function, and that's why we have the speech therapists uh, see our patients on a daily basis. So we can see some recovery. Uh, if they're not, having, not able to swallow safely now, it doesn't mean that three or four days from now they... You know, won't necessarily be able to do that. So we could wait a few days. And what you're saying is he can't swallow, so we're going to feed him. Is that going to be in his nose, in his mouth? I've seen tubes sticking out of the stomach. Okay, sure. Um, Well, you know, in the old days, uh, we'd put these little skinny tubes down the nose and into the stomach, and uh, they're kind of annoying because they irritate the nose, and then they keep coming out or people pull them out. So... Uh, we might, we could possibly use that for a couple of days, but I don't think that's uh, probably the best thing to do. I think I would just uh, give your husband IV fluids, and then in a few days decide if we want to put in a permanent feeding tube. And that's a tube that would actually be put in through the wall of his abdomen and go directly into the stomach. And so the uh, nutrition would be administered directly into his stomach that way. And and if you do that, that means that he won't get pneumonia. I've heard people that they, they the food goes down into mm-hmm. their lungs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, that's always a complication because if people have trouble swallowing, um, that means they also have trouble handling all of their normal saliva and secretion. So it's still possible that your husband could what we call aspirate, and some of that could go into the lungs and cause pneumonia. So even if they have a feeding tube in, it doesn't... Uh, uh, make it impossible for for them to develop that complication, which is one of the complications of having a stroke. So, so if if you put the tube in and he gets better, can we take it out, or does he leave it in? Can he eat with sure. it? Sure. Um, sometimes we can take it out, and we may have it in uh, someone for two or three months, and uh, maybe towards the end they're able to eat a little bit. So we could supplement uh, the tube feedings with some oral nutrition too so that they're not, you know, totally unable to eat. And so they might be able to take in certain consistencies of food, but not others. Okay. So I was just sort of running through a scenario that might, it's very common, right? You get those questions all the it time. It is, yeah. This happens, uh, probably I see this two or three times a year. Yeah, and so, so you need to have talked to your loved ones about whether you'd like that kind of experience. I think a feeding tube is, is a good idea in this case from, from my perspective, uh, but if my husband didn't want that, um, I, I, won't, I would want to know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a follow-up question, Ms. Hilary. Is it ever ethical to withhold fluids nutrition and if so under what circumstances sure you know I think um, just going back uh, a little bit of history when it came to advanced directives uh, which came out in the 60s and 70s there was a concern I think on the part of Christians whether these might serve as excuses to maybe withhold care that was appropriate because around the same time, the death with dignity or, or right to die movement started coming about. So I think people were, to some extent, rightfully suspicious of, of these documents because they thought it could be used against them and that it would, um, would hasten their death. And, um, um, you know, a lot of, um, I mean, as believers, we should feel that, you know, we, we need to honor God with our bodies and that they're... 
that even though maybe we um, can't do the things that we used to be able to do because of ill health, um, whether it's a stroke or chronic illness, you know, we can still serve the Lord. We still have a, a role of service. We can pray for people. Um, and so we, we don't want to lightly uh, give up on this very special gift of life that we receive from God. At the same time, there really is no obligation upon us either as Christians to, to prolong dying um, uh, when, when it's clear that our body is dying and um, any intervention would just prolong that dying process. So I think as we can be faithful Christians and we can, we can withhold uh, a feeding tube or we can withdraw a feeding tube. Yes, I think that's... Say yes. I don't know. Other panelists might have. Yeah, ideas I would. On that. I would agree with that. We had a um, a patient two weeks ago um, in our practice who came for um, uh, a hip fracture, and uh, and he went into cardiac arrest uh, while in the operating room. Um, specifically, the family had requested that he not receive chest compressions or shocks, uh, so we honored that. We just gave him some IV fluids and some um, strong drugs to try to reinitiate his circulation. Uh, which it did, um, and then we got him into the um, intensive care unit. At that point, about an hour later, he went into cardiac arrest again. At this point in the medical community, we kind of look at each other. We say, you know what, this, this patient is, is trying to die. I mean, this, this gentleman is really, the tank is empty. And uh, he has a breathing tube in, though, so he can't really communicate his wishes. Uh, so we get back together with the family and kind of explain to the family what's happening, you know, that this cycle of him going into cardiac arrest, receiving drugs, and then going for another hour or two could continue, you know, for hours or, or possibly a day or two. Um, and at that point, the family wished to make this gentleman uh, what we call comfort measures in the hospital. So even in the intensive care unit, uh, we can agree to stop giving, you know, IV fluids, to stop giving drugs, uh, to stop, you know, monitoring for uh, events like cardiac arrest. Um, and basically um, just let that patient continue on until they expire naturally, which he did within probably an hour or so. Um, so I would say in response to, to Gary's question that it, it is ethical, um, you know, when the, when the patient or the patient's family, by way of an advanced directive, uh, desire that we not be aggressively giving IV fluids or, or whatever that might be. So definitely. I think there's an important distinction to consider is there is a, ethically, there's a difference between neglect and uh, prolonging the active dying process. Um, we know that people, as they die, as they are actively dying, sometimes these um, things can actually be harmful and they actually prolong um, the process of digestion of feedings from a feeding tube does require some energy and can be taxing on a body that may uh, and, and take um, energy from somewhere else, for example, uh, uh, the energy it takes to be conscious and communicative and takes it towards the blood flow, takes it towards digestion. So we know that there is actually, you know, there could actually be some harm done by continuing feedings when somebody is uh, actively dying. In a place where, um, in this particular case, the eventual conscious uh, outcome of this patient is somewhat unknown. Um, he may uh, recover somewhat some of his ability to speak, some of his personality, depending on where the stroke was. Some of his personality and, and his consciousness may um, uh, improve. We don't really know. And so we're talking about a scenario where this isn't necessarily um, uh, hastening his uh, uh, death necessarily, but it may sort of buy some time in order to find out, you know, what is the eventual outcome and, and I've, had, um, I've had situations very similar to this where the family was, was very adamant and, and they said, no, my wife or husband said they never wanted to be in a nursing home with a feeding tube in and um, in this situation. And we would just like you to keep my spouse comfortable. And we've done that. We've had patients go to hospice. And to, to follow up on Paul's comment, too, I have never witnessed, and I'm sure the physicians here would also testify, that they've never witnessed an advanced directive used maliciously to withhold care or to keep care away from somebody. 
the whole medical field is geared to just keep you going, sometimes to the point where it's just beyond reason. So as a patient, you know, you're here tonight because you actually have to sort of protect yourself um, from being over-treated and from being uh, over-resuscitated or to a point where it's just, you know, not a good death, so to speak. Um, so you don't have to worry about not receiving care. I would say the concern is you have to be worried about being over-treated when you don't want to be treated. Mm-hmm. That, I would say that is the current medical culture. We're very... Um, I guess some of us are becoming more comfortable with it, but as a larger medical culture, we're very uncomfortable with death still. Even those of us who see it, uh, see it or have seen it quite a lot, it's still this, I don't, some, something about being human that says, I want to win, I want to I live, I want them to live. And, that, and sometimes it's hard for us to separate that... Um, now, will culture change in the future? I mean, who knows? It's changing worldwide. So, Yeah, and those uh, if you recall some of those statistics that I threw out about where people die and about a third of Medicare beneficiaries um, um, die at home now, but about, I think, 25% um, died in the hospital, which was down. But actually, if you look at the numbers, uh, the numbers that actually die in intensive care units over that same decade was actually gone up. So there was more intensive care in those patients that did come into the hospital. So it's not like they're being brought in and ignored. If anything, they're being treated aggressively. And I would agree with Dr. Parks that our our default mode tends to be to treat. I mean, that's what physicians do. You know, we we try to restore health. We, We try to make people better. We're very reluctant to give up on our patients. And I see a hand, and that's reminding me that we need to open up yeah, to the audience. Yeah, let's figure out a way to transition into some Q&A with everybody on the congregation. And, and so, John and Bennett, if we are ready to go with the microphones, let the panel respond to the questions we've got. We'll start here. And oh. I, I saw her hand next, Bennett. So if you want to come down over on this side. Uh, just uh, a two-part question. After the heart stops, uh, how long would it be approximately before serious damage is done if resuscitation does not take place, first of all? And secondly, then, um, if, there, if there is not an advanced directive and the heart stops, what would the normal procedure of the medical, the response of the medical community be if there were not an advanced directive? Well, I'll answer your, the first part of your question, Bill. Um, your, your brain is very dependent on oxygen and glucose, uh, more so than any other organ in the body. So after five minutes, nerve cells start to decline and die. So the brain is a very unforgiving organ. And then the other question about response to if there is no advanced directive... Are you talking about... You'll, you will get everything if there's no advanced directive. If you roll into the emergency room in our hospital and we don't know anything about you, you're going to get everything until we are instructed and see some legal document that says to stop. Let, let me just... Uh, I was going to ask Dean to maybe chime in on this, too, because that raises the old issue of, well, what if you're, say, in a nursing home and you don't want to be resuscitated uh, or certain situations like that? Dean? Okay. There's a Wisconsin statute, and if you want to look it up later, you can. It's Wisconsin Statute 154, and it has to do with do not resuscitate. Now, if you Google this, be careful. If you Google DNR, you could end up on the Department of Natural Resources. (laughs) So my advice would be to spell that out. The the Department of Health Services. Yeah. (laughs) A DNR bracelet was created in the state of Wisconsin for any out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and it gives emergency responders the ability to stop all efforts if the bracelet is located on the wrist, and it's one that's approved by the state of Wisconsin, and those are key points. Um, The current bracelet that's handed out by the physician's office looks almost identical to the bracelet you wear when you're admitted to the hospital. It has a piece of paper inside, has the state insignia on it, signed by the doctor, and it says do not resuscitate, generally in blue ink. Um, 
there is one company that I'm aware of that makes a metal bracelet that's approved by the state. You have to have the state seal on the backside. That's what the emergency responders are trained to look for. If that's not in place, they need to pass it off to the medical director that they work under to make the decision. And so there can be a delay there because the state statute doesn't allow them to just make the decision to stop. So is that answering your question? And and a nursing home, assisted living, those are out-of-hospital situations, and that falls under that statute. Corey, did you? Well, what I was going to just define is what is meant by everything, and everything is not could include um, um, IV medications, IVs, uh, interventions such as uh, chest tubes or uh, other other ancillary lines, um, chest compressions, shocks or defibrillation. Um, Artificial uh, breathing, either with a bag, a tube, or a machine. And just for the sake of thoroughness, too, um, as, as Paul described, that's, that's accurate. So five minutes um, until your brain is at risk. Um, but for the sake of thoroughness, there have been some examples of people who have survived um, after mm-hmm. being without a pulse for um, hours, and that's somebody who's cold. Yes. Uh, a friend of mine who works in Fond du Lac pulled somebody out of a snowbank last winter um, in full cardiac arrest for some unknown, unknown amount of time, but probably at least 30 minutes to an hour. Um, her core temperature was very cold, and uh, they actually got her back, and she was completely fine. That's, that's a, a rare example, but the only way to survive a long time is if you're really cold. That's, okay. <laughs> this is that's, actually really fascinating because there's an adage left over from medical school is that the patient's not dead unless they're warm and dead. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But this is uh, very interesting. Are, are, this is actually. Are we glad been... we live in Wisconsin? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, let's let's try, answer some more questions. I have a uh, biblically ethical type of question, and the scenario is three different people who who have no prior health issues, and we're talking about the whole DNR issue. You've got a twenty-year-old, a fifty-year-old, and an eighty-year-old. Um, is it wise for each one of them just to go ahead and say, you know, I don't want to do DNR, regardless of pre-existing conditions? Um, yeah, I, I always go back to the Bible, too, for my ethics. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to come across saying that, or having you think that the that, that DNR or that uh, resuscitation um, CPR should not be considered in, in any situation. No, I, I don't mean to imply that at all. Uh, if you know, if I were that person going to the hospital for hip replacement, then I would say, yeah, by all means, if my heart stops, uh, please try to bring me back. I'm otherwise a pretty healthy person. And uh, so, the the problem I, I think uh, with advanced directives is trying to anticipate every scenario when it comes to putting limitations on your care, and some people try to do that. that. That's really hard because you try to cover all the bases and then, sure enough, something happens and it doesn't quite fit with what's there in the advanced directive. So I, I think you have to be flexible. And, uh, you know, I think what's important really is to talk with your your loved ones about what you want done. It, it's great to put this in writing, but that doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of talking to them and having discussions. So. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I could make a comment about that too. Yeah. In, in my practice generally, I have noticed uh, two attitudes among patients, and it, it doesn't relate to the medical problem or the treatment we're talking about. But s- s- there's a group that say, I want everything done. I want every, and I don't know if that's so much a spiritual condition or it's just a preference. And then the other side of the spectrum is those that say, my, you know, I've lived a good life, uh, my heart stops, I don't want anything done. And, and those are philosophies more than anything. Yeah. I've seen that too. I, I, can, I can answer a little bit to that. I think it's really a question, you know, it isn't so much the age, it isn't so much the... the the item, you know, the feeding tube or that, it's the quality of life. If I needed a feeding tube tomorrow, what 
would my quality of life be like? And is this a short-term thing? Is this probably going to be a long-term thing? Um, you know, is this part of the course of treatment I need to go through to get better? Or is this something like renal dialysis I will need to deal with for the rest of my life? I think that plays into, into the decision. My question, um, I think you've touched a little bit on, on the question I had. I have had these conversations with both my dad and my mom. And uh, my dad passed away several years ago, and my mom is in a nursing home for a uh, fractured pelvis, recuperating. And the uh, uh, do not resuscitate question has come up. And uh, in each of those two situations, um, there was a lot of confusion about what exactly does that mean. Um, Neither of my folks wanted to have their ribs broken with uh, compression, but both of them expressed uh, concern about, well, what happens if, and then you can fill in the blank with lots of situations, what happens if I fall down and I faint or something like that? Um, are they going to leave me there? And, um, you know, I, I would say, well, no, Mom, of course not. You know, they're going to help you. But these fears are are very real, and um, so when I was talking with a nurse at the nursing home, I actually, a lot of my questions centered around um, what about this situation, what about that situation, and it, it struck me that it's a pretty gray area, and as much clarity as we can get ahead of time, um, and as much clarity a healthcare provider can provide during these discussions about this is what it means to be resuscitated in these situations. In these situations, we would not consider that part of this issue. And maybe if you could just address that, please. And thank you, by the way. I think, I think Jeff, on um, page three of, of uh, Five Wishes, um, you can specify do not do chest compressions. You can spec- there's, there are lines there to write that. And, and, and that doesn't mean they might not do respiratory um, treatments to you, resuscitation. I had a patient in the emergency room a few years ago who, I, I can't remember if it was a bee sting or a medication reaction. He had a do not resuscitate um, wish, and his uh, loved one was with him, and his loved one said, he doesn't want anything done. And the doctor said, wait a minute, this is reversible. If I just breathe for him for an hour, he's going to breathe on his own. So the doctor violated his wishes and put a tube down for 20 minutes. The guy recovered, and he lived. He did sue the hospital, though. <laughs> he's happy to live. He just wanted our money. <laughs> <clears throat> Getting on, do we have one or two more questions? Yeah. Gary, I'd like you to answer this question, and we'll come to the front. Then if you have your microphone, uh, bring it up here to the front. Uh, okay. Or you've got one more. My question is this. We hear this ish- these big end-of-life issues, and we're, we're grappling with it, and we go home, and we're putting our head on the pillow. How do we pray that night? Well, here's what I would do tonight. A couple passages come to mind. Is this our last question? Is that the plan? Okay. The first is I would turn to James. In James chapter 1, what we find here is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. People, technology is not ethics. Technology was made for men, not man for technology, to paraphrase a statement from the scriptures. So then, technology is a tool that we should use, but we should use wisely, incorporating the principles that we're hearing from, from these are very gifted in this area tonight. But what we need to do, first of all, is to pray for wisdom, because this is what James himself challenges you and me to do. 
take this information and say, now what? What do I do in light of what I have just heard so that I'm in a proactive rather than a reactive position, which is the value, again, of advanced directives? Second of all, I have to accept this principle as well. Taken from Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Same word again being utilized here, wisdom. Having done a funeral in the last two weeks, pondering the significance of this whole issue, when you and I are challenged, teach us to number our days aright. In order to number our days aright, in order to count our days, you've got to make our days count. To make our days count begins with knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, drawing deeply from the wisdom that comes from the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the word that God has given us, seeking him in prayer and saying proactively, I want now to fill out these advanced directives. I want to work this through scripturally so that my loved ones, if I'm in an unconscious state, will not have to grapple with some of these issues who may not share the same values necessarily that I do, or maybe they share them today, but may not share them tomorrow, and I will be unaware. So then we go to our Lord. We seek the wisdom found in James chapter 1. We count our days by making our days count, according to Psalm 90, verse 12. And as we do so, take into account the information that we have here and the opportunity we have then to proactively, in a wise way, develop this plan so that we understand clearly the dying process is still part of the living process. The end result is you will have an impact upon others, even as you're dying, will far go beyond the days of which you live. That's my prayer for you tonight. We close by simply saying thank you to the panel. Would you give them a warm hand saying thank you so much? Thank you. I hope... You're going to get to know them, wonderful people, dear friends. Also, once again, at our back table, what we have are more advanced directives. And again, you'll want to talk to Marge or Christy because you even have the opportunity for them to uh, sit down in your home. They're willing to kind of slowly walk you through this, think this through, so that, so that you, while you have these days where you are taking these things into account, can can develop a plan that I think is God-honoring and ministers to others. Take them up on that. I think it's a wise idea. And finally, next week, we'll be dealing with this whole matter of palliative care, comfort care, the hospice situation as well. We'll have some other panelists up here, including Marge and Christy. And my hope is that through this, we're going to have a well-developed plan as a church and as individuals to be able to minister to others, but all for God's glory. Let's stand together. So, Father, thank you now. We realize that ethics comes from you, not from technology. It is a wonderful tool. But with this wonderful tool, it produces new complicating situations that have to be thought through within the context of a Christian worldview. So my prayer tonight is that there will be a James 1 approach, that we will gain wisdom from you, There will be a Psalm 90 approach. We'll count our days in accordance with wisdom. And the result is, Father, that we are going to have a great impact upon this region beyond. And it's all for your glory. Thank you now for this evening. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.